The average caseload that they were carrying was over 469 cases, which is outrageous. There were a lot of clients that ended up pleading guilty when in fact we had done no work on their cases. When people are arrested in the United States, they are entitled to legal representation. Anyone who cannot afford a lawyer is assigned a public defender, but that doesn't always lead to a fair trial. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Levels. Since the creation of the firm's pro bono department in 1970, Hogan Levels has made advocacy in criminal justice a top priority. Just a few years ago in Miami, Florida, each attorney at the public defender's office was assigned up to 500 cases a year. With such enormous caseloads, it was nearly impossible for clients to get justice. So the public defender took the state of Florida to court. Partner Al Lindsay, the pro bono lawyer on that case, is with us, along with the public defender he represented, Carlos Martinez. Carlos, let me start with you. What is the impact on lawyers and their clients when caseloads are this high? Uh, thank you for the opportunity first. And uh, the impact can be lifelong, uh, particularly on the clients uh, and even on the lawyers as we experience during our litigation. Uh, it takes a personal, emotional toll on a lawyer uh, when a lawyer realizes that the lawyer can miss steps and can actually forget to communicate uh, either with an individual or with the judge uh, because there's such crush of cases. Uh, in terms of the clients, the impact on the clients, there were a lot of clients that ended up pleading guilty uh, when in fact we had done no work on their cases, uh, when in fact we had not talked to the witnesses, uh, we had not independently investigated the case, and uh, there was really no opportunity uh, to really even research and file motions on the cases. So that's the impact on the client. On the lawyers, I can give you one anecdote, uh, and uh, Al uh, Lindsay will remember this particular anecdote. Uh, we had one lawyer uh, that uh, testified uh, during our case when we presented our case. And that one lawyer had a client that was facing a very long time in state prison. And as a result of the situation that was happening in court where she was handling approximately 20 some cases during one court hearing. Information was given to her by the prosecutor, a plea offer was made uh, for a number of years in state prison to be served. But the number of years was about one fourth or one fifth of what the individual was facing in state prison. And as she was handling multiple cases at the same time, and cases were coming up that were ready to go to trial, cases were coming up that there was negotiation, cases were coming up during the same calendar call, you know, over a two to three hour span, that her attention is being pulled essentially in 20 some different ways. And because of that, she was unable to communicate with that particular client that plea offer. 
had she been able to communicate it to the client, the client would have accepted it. The big problem that we had was that the prosecutor said this plea offer is only open today. And because she failed to tell the client, the prosecutor took that plea offer off the table. Uh, and uh, you can imagine the emotional toll that it took on that attorney and on that client. And even though they were still able to work out over the next few months to try to get something close to the original offer, uh, it still was a horrible thing uh, for that client to experience and that attorney to experience. I can only imagine, and, and just to emphasize something that you said, Carlos, so that the listeners aren't thinking, well, if somebody has 20 cases on their docket, what's the problem? This was an instance where someone had on the order of 20 cases in a single day that were subject to various court proceedings during a few hours long calendar call. Correct. 20 cases in a single day. Correct. So when you think about this, you know, not just from the perspective of the of the public defender who is who is just overwhelmed with the number of things that she has to pay immediate attention to, from the perspective of the clients, you know, Al, as you got involved in this case, you know, I, I wonder if you were seeing this as as an example of the justice system stacked against uh, clients, particularly low income clients, in a very particular way. Yeah, of course I did. I, I mean, what we saw was constant moves by the Florida legislature to reduce the budgets available to the public defenders throughout the state. And as I recall, it was the the budgets were cut almost 13% over the course of a little over a year. So you, you had lawyers um, that are by you know they're national standards. They're you know groups that come up with national standards. What what a public defender should have in terms of a of a non uh, of, of a of a non capital felony caseload, and those standards range from a hundred cases a year to about two hundred cases a year. These these defenders in Miami Dade, because of the budget cuts, the lack of you know the lack of staffing. The average caseload that they were carrying was over 469 cases, which is outrageous. And and by the way, to Carlos's story, that public defender was and is an extraordinarily good lawyer. I mean, educated at a top law school. It wasn't it wasn't that she forgot or was you know just messed up. It was uh, it was this crushing caseload. Imagine if you were a criminal defendant who believed in your case, who believed you were genuinely innocent and your lawyer had a hundred cases set for trial in any given week. How, would you think that was justice? And I certainly didn't. Uh, and I was just very privileged to be a part of this, this case that really, really did uh, have a, have a, uh, a broad impact. I think. How did you get involved Al, in this case? How did you and the firm get involved? Our late and great, partner Parker Thompson had a, uh, a relationship with the then public defender, a, a gentleman by the name of Bennett Brummer, who had been, was well known in Miami, he, I think 29 years, Carlos can correct me as, as the public defender. 32. Which is, 
32. <laughs> it, was, it was probably 29 when we started. Exactly. And, and, and uh, you know, Bennett was was a real icon uh, in these parts, uh, a great man, a great lawyer, um, and and he knew Parker, and and they started the discussion. Just so happened that I've known Carlos, who was. I guess Bennett's kind of chief deputy at the time, and has since since then uh, been the public defender, and uh, uh, so it it just happened to be a good team to congeal, and we did, and I was you know very privileged to try the case uh, with uh, Parker, and I, I even recall Carlos, I I had you were my witness, I put you on the witness stand at one point. Yes, you did a couple of times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, you know, that was, that was a lot of fun. We, we got a great result from the, from, at the trial level. And this, the state, it was almost, you know, I was incredulous that the state was really fighting this case, but they gave it all they could. They put one of their best prosecutors on it. Uh, they fought us every step of the way. Uh, they were trying to say that each, each defender had to basically try to withdraw from each case individually, which would have just added more work to their workload rather than kind of on mass. There was a certification that, that Bennett Brummer had made to the courts that, you know, we're overwhelmed. You, you've got to stop assigning us to these cases. Um, you know, they, they, they chose to fight us on that. The third DCA, the district court of appeal for uh, Miami-Dade County uh, reversed what was a very well-reasoned decision, obviously. And, uh, and, I was, you know, we were all just very happy that uh, that the Florida Supreme Court uh, did its job. And, you know, the, the, the thing here is there are rules of professional conduct that require loyalty to clients, that re require, a that, that say there's a conflict if your duty to a client is impaired by your duty to other clients. Uh, you have to, you have to be able to do the work or you have to turn it down. And it, it was, you know, it, it boggered credulity that the state was effectively saying that the public defenders were not required to live up to those rules of professional conduct. Uh, fortunately, the Supreme Court um, set them straight. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about that. And maybe, Carlos, you can speak to this as well. Um, the the course that the that the case took, we're, we're talking in the first instance about crushing caseloads that were occasioned by budget cuts. We're talking about some of the ethical implications of having that crushing caseload. But what was what was the legal theory of the case? Well, the legal theory of the case uh, was that because we have these ethical obligations, number one, for the lawyer to be competent. And uh, in the legal terminology for the ethical rules, a lawyer is considered competent to handle a legal matter if the lawyer has the knowledge, the skills, the thoroughness necessary, and the preparation necessary to handle the matter. And even though we have lawyers who are quite skilled, who are quite knowledgeable, there was no way on earth it could be thorough and they were absolutely unprepared for a large number uh, of the cases. I wanna give you an analogy because, you know, even when I look back on when we had these crusher cases, a lot gets lost in the numbers. Uh, but the numbers tell a story. 
Uh, during the first year of our litigation, the total number of cases that the office handled was 125,000 cases. And we had 165 lawyers to handle all of that caseload. Bring it to today. Today, I have in a year, 70,000 cases. And those 70,000 cases are handled by 200 lawyers. So I've added lawyers since then and our caseload has been reduced. One way to look at it is, uh, and the court was looking at this in terms of the triage that the lawyers had to do. So one way to look at it is, you know, our office became the emergency room and all outpatient services were closed and you could only see the patients through the emergency room. Uh, if we were looking at a medical system that that's the only way that it functioned, only through the emergency room, all of us would be shocked and would say that we can't do that. We can't do that because we are going to sacrifice individuals' lives uh, in the process. And here, the sacrifice is there are serious legal consequences when somebody pleads guilty, even to a minor offense. Some of these consequences are lifelong in terms of employment, in terms of housing. Uh, and because the process was a triage process, essentially tens of thousands of people were negatively impacted for life. That's a, that's a powerful analogy you just made to the hospital ER, just that, that the, the triage of the people in immediate need or the highest distress were the only people you know, who were able in any particular moment uh, to, get any, to get any service. You mentioned, Carlos, just now that the, that the assignments to you, um, to your office, have dropped from 125,000 to 70,000. Are there other outlets for assignment to public defenders for people who can't afford an attorney? I'm curious about that drop in, in numbers. Uh, the drop in numbers has been, there have been several factors. The primary factor is uh, police arrests and crime in general has gone down uh, dramatically year after year after year. And uh, so that has helped us really be able to focus on representing individuals competently uh, and diligently. So that, that's the primary reason for the drop. Now, in terms of other outlets for representation, uh, there's an outlet for representation if we file a conflict of interest. So if we say we now have too many clients and not enough lawyers, if we do that now, it goes to the Office of Regional Conflict Council which that office existed way back when, but that office was also overloaded at the time that we filed our conflicts in these cases. Al, you mentioned that uh, the trial court gave you a very favorable decision. Uh, the intermediate appellate court, the third DCA, reversed, and then the Florida Supreme Court you know, came in and reversed that reversal. Tell us a little bit about the Florida Supreme Court's decision and the, and the grounds for it, if you would. You know, I, I think that uh, Carlos said it right when, when, when you asked the theory of the case, it, it was very simple. The theory was that the public defenders 
are required to live and work by the same ethical standards that every other lawyer is. And so there's that. And then we proved that using, in many ways, numbers, raw, the raw numbers, including the numbers of the budget cuts, in, including the, the caseload numbers of the attorneys. And, and, and I remember uh, very, very clearly during one of the oral, during the Florida Supreme Court oral argument, uh, Justice, I believe it was Pariente, uh, was just shocked that uh, that individual lawyers had had 470 cases uh, that they had to handle uh, at any given time, and be, and it was I I kind of smiled myself because I remembered we you know that was the evidence that we presented at the trial court, and she was obviously you know relying on that record, uh, but th that that was really it. It was not a, a, a complex case of you know arcane legal decisions it was it was really common sense practical that hey these public defenders have the same duty as every other lawyer to represent their client zealously and and with competence and the florida supreme court saw that and that was that was the reason for their decision so after the decision, Carlos, um, you, you mentioned the the stats that show how much the numbers have dropped. How how quickly was that? How quickly were you able to staff up? Did you did you get a budget infusion right away, or was it a long time coming after that? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing. No, I I, uh, I asked it mostly sarcastically. Uh, we did not get a budget infusion at all. Mm. Uh, the best that we could hope for actually happened in 2010 in me working with the legislature uh, and uh, both Republicans and Democrats from Miami-Dade County. Uh, thankfully, I had a good relationship with them and they were able to put a stop to the continuing budget cuts because every year until about 2012, they were trying to cut 5% annual every time budget. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we were able to at least stop the bleeding i went to the private bar the florida association of criminal defense lawyers miami uh, they came to the rescue i also started a pro bono program for our misdemeanor cases and i was able to get uh, civil lawyers we trained them up so it took us eight hours worth of training and we were able to give a lot of those misdemeanor cases uh, to those civil lawyers who needed their associates to get some trial practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so we were able to do that. Uh, one of the changes I wanted to implement is to be able to have uh, the attorneys interviewing the client via secure video, point to point from each jail unit to the, to the laptop or the PC of the lawyer. Mm -hmm. So that way the lawyers did not have to drive to the jail. Uh, driving to the jail would cost a lawyer one and a half to two hours yeah. for every single time. Uh, so that helped me eliminate a lot of the waste, wasted time that the lawyers had and instead use that time to interview and to actually uh, see more clients and do more work on cases. I mean, we got really creative on a lot of these things. And the benefit of the challenges that we had then and the changes that we'd put in place 
uh, we're getting the benefits right now. When COVID hit, mm, yeah. uh, we were essentially the only one of, I'm sorry, one of two public defender offices in the state of Florida who had a video connection to their clients at the jail because we could not visit personally because the jail shut down, but we were still able to interview our clients, communicate with our clients via video. And we also have an extensive uh, you know, phone system where clients call, we get about a thousand calls a day uh, and the clients were able to communicate. Had we not had the changes we put in place in 2010, 2011, this situation would have been much worse right now in terms of us not being able to appropriately represent incarcerated people. I can imagine. I mean, you were well ahead of your time on that. Well, let me just note, though, that that, that was nothing new for, for PD-11, for the 11 Judicial Circuit's public defender. I mean, I remember in the case, we submitted re- substantial evidence showing that you know, it's not because anybody's sitting around. The the public defender had already instituted many of these kind of visionary, you know, efficiency uh, driving mm-hmm. practices in their office. So it wasn't it it wasn't that you know, you, you just couldn't blame the public defender's office. They were already uh, maximizing efficiencies in every way possible, and I'm sure technology since the development of technology since then has has further helped that. But it was nothing new for for Carlos and yeah. his team. Absolutely. Carlos, I'm curious. You, you mentioned that there was one other defender's office in Florida who was equipped to to handle the the pandemic communications with clients. I'm wondering in a, in a broader sense, I'm sure you're in touch with other uh, defenders across the country. Is this is the caseload problem that you that you confronted 10 years ago? Is that rare or common? Uh, it is rare that you have it under control. <laughs> it is quite common throughout the entire country uh, that public defender offices, uh, the attorneys have too many cases and not enough time to work on the cases. Uh, that's been the common theme uh, after our case and even during our case. Uh, there was a challenge in New York State. Uh, there was a challenge in Missouri. There was a huge challenge also uh, in New Orleans, uh, and that was after Katrina, and that continues uh, to this day. Uh, so it is rare when the caseloads are under control and when you have an adequately funded uh, public defender's office. That is what I suspected, uh, but I wanted to ask the question nevertheless. And I, I think, I, I take it this case, because it, it took place about 10 years ago. Was this the first or among the first to uh, have a, particularly a state Supreme Court address issues of inadequacy in defenders' offices? If I remember correctly, and Al can correct me, um, it is the first time that they actually used the bar rules, the ethical obligations of a lawyer as the basis for them ruling that the public defender uh, could not adequately handle the number of cases uh, it had assigned to it with the number of attorneys uh, that it had. And the more, the, the, the most powerful finding that there was uh, is that it's a prospective issue, meaning 
that public defenders don't have to wait until the damage is done to individual clients. Yes, yes. You can do it ahead of time, bring it up to the court and present to the court, uh, you know, the argument that I am not being ethical uh, if I continue to handle these cases because I do not have the time to be competent or diligent or to communicate with clients. We also had issues with communication. Uh, we found as we were working up the case and looking at things that we had hundreds and hundreds of clients where the attorney had not even talked to the client. Uh, and which, you know, uh, those of us who can afford to pay for a lawyer, you pay for a lawyer, you're going to talk to that lawyer at least the first time that you're giving that lawyer money. Uh, and, you know, you set out the parameters. But in, this, in these instances, uh, the individuals were being assigned the public defender. Uh, we would generate, auto-generate a letter. Uh, but if you called, you wouldn't be able to talk to your lawyer. The lawyer just didn't have time. Wow. No, it's it's astonishing, all of it. Al, were you going to add something? I'm just. Uh, you asked about if this was a, a you know, if there if there were other cases like the Florida Supreme Court's opinion, and and I was just thinking back, and I remember there was a, just nothing uh, out there on this issue, uh, and this case really, I think, is correctly considered a case of first impression, or at least the first written decision that that's got persuasive value. And, uh, you know, when the decision came out, I mean, the, the, the public defender community, the national community uh, really lauded this case. And, it, and, it, and I do think it, it does to this day uh, put the brakes, at least taps the brakes on some of these state, yeah. state legislators that are trying to defund public defenders around the country. Yeah. And, and particularly in, a, in circumstances, and they always exist, but maybe all the more so now where people are looking for places to cut the budget to understand that there is a fundamental ethical baseline you know, below which you can't cut is, is just crucially important, I think, to the, to the justice system's functioning. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, Carlos or Al, anything further you'd like to add before we wrap up? Just that working on this case was one of the great privileges of my career. And uh, it's, it's, it's nice to, it's even nicer to work with a, with a friend and, uh, and brilliant colleague like Carlos Martinez, who's done so much for our community down here in Miami. And uh, I, I gotta say, you know, very similar to that. Um, we felt and my attorneys felt supported so much, even though they were still facing the crushing caseloads in the courtroom, they felt extremely supported because a major international firm uh, was focused on helping uh, people who don't have the funds to hire an attorney. And, you know, my lawyers, and I know for me, I was astonished how much a private lawyer can do when I would see uh, the work product that uh, Al uh, Parker and the team, you know, when they would send us documents and we would go through the stuff. I mean, it, it was just brilliant work. Uh, and then to see them at trial, we, we were so floored because they went to the trial. They actually had a paralegal present. <laughs> at trial, you know, <laughs> passing the materials. And we were like, 
oh my God, we've never had a paralegal. <laughs> but it was wonderful to experience that and to see what it could be and what it should be. Uh, and to know that you have, that we had the civil bar standing uh, shoulder to shoulder with us and pushing forward and, and giving us, I mean, I stopped counting when it went over one and a half million dollars of attorney time uh, that uh, Hogan Lovells uh, gave to this effort uh, over a period of, I think it was five years, Al? I think that's what it yeah, was. I think it, it was five years. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it was just wonderful. And it really is a guiding light. And had that not happened, we would be in a very different situation uh, right now. So we're extremely thankful uh, to Hogan Lovells for that. That's wonderful, Carlos. Thank you so much. Um, and Al and Carlos, thank you both for, for um, sitting down today and for talking through this. It's a wonderful discussion. Striving for criminal justice carries on far beyond a client's day in court. Our lawyers continue to advocate for the fair and just treatment of those who have been convicted and sentenced to prison. Katie Ali and David Maxwell, who are here with us today, sued the Commonwealth of Virginia over the state's abhorrent death row conditions. So David, tell us a little about the conditions on death row in Virginia in 2015. Sure, so in 2015 when the lawsuit was filed, if you got a death sentence in Virginia, you were automatically housed in solitary confinement for the duration of your time in prison while you're awaiting that sentence. Um, so regardless of the circumstances of your crime, what kind of person you were, how likely you were to be violent in prison, didn't matter. You were put into solitary confinement and permanently. Um, given the length of appeals and death penalty cases, that can be a really long time. Some of our clients were in these conditions for 10 years uh, or more. Um, so what does solitary confinement mean? These death row inmates were kept alone in their cell for 23 hours a day, um, 24 on the weekends. The cells are about 71 square feet, which is less than half the size of a standard parking space. Um, the door to the cell was not, you know, the sort of stereotypical prison bars. It was a solid metal door with just a small covered slot through which the prison staff would provide food. On the other side, there was a small window, but it was really a window in name only. Um, it was covered in a pretty dense metal mesh that really didn't let any natural light into the cell. Um, overhead were fluorescent lights that were kept on 24 hours a day. Um, and, and this was the you know, confinement in which the prisoners were alone. They ate alone. They didn't have activities with other inmates. They were not permitted contact visits from family members, friends, or spouses. They were allowed one hour of outdoor recreation five days per week, but for the outdoor recreation, they were put, again, in individual cages outside, about the same size as, as their cell. Um, so their only social interaction was really with prison staff who would periodically come by to check on them. Um, otherwise, really a near total deprivation of any social or environmental stimuli. 
When when you started working on this case and and meeting and talking with the inmates, how how did these conditions affect the inmates? What did you find? So I think um, what we found with our clients really matched what the literature and the sort of scientific research in the last ten or twenty years has shown, which is that long term. Um, being subjected long-term to conditions like the ones David described have really predictable results, um, which is, you know, a a serious risk of serious psychological and emotional harm. And I think one of our experts um, put it really, I think both poignantly and also um, it's really sort of horrifying, but that being deprived of human contact really deprives you of a fundamental component of what it is to be human. We are by nature really social creatures. And when you deprive people of the ability to, um, you know, not only communicate with other people, but eat, you know, share a meal with them, um, see them face to face, have any sort of physical contact with anyone, you are fundamentally depriving someone of what it is to be human. And I think you see the, the effects of that, which can range from um, depression and anxiety, the inability, you know, extreme insomnia, which all of our clients suffered from, the sort of um, loss of motivation to do anything, like write letters to family and friends, the loss of motivation to read or do other things that you might have otherwise found pleasurable. Um, And, you know, at the extreme end, of course, there's tons and tons of literature documenting um, a a very high risk of suicidal ideation and and carrying out um, those ideations for people in solitary confinement. So the the risk of suicide for people subjected to long-term solitary confinement is enormously high. And that is Um, part and parcel of this risk of harm that being subjected for months and in our client's case, years on end to a close to total deprivation of contact uh, creates, you know, David described the conditions really well. One example that I think shows you just how extreme the isolation was that Virginia subjected our clients to is the fact that one of the arguments that the, that Virginia made as to why we were wrong that what they were facing was isolation was they argued that our clients could yell through grates in the ceiling like air conditioning vents to people who they never met would never meet would never see face to face who were in the floor above them and could sort of hear, make out garbled conversations with those people. And the fact to me, the fact that they argued, no, no, your clients are not in isolation. Look at this example of the kinds of contact they have is, is such a striking example of just how total this isolation was. Yeah. And it, it strikes me as particularly stark. You know, we, we're seeing, obviously, this is being recorded during the time of the pandemic. We're seeing all sorts of armchair commentary at how difficult it is to to be distanced from each other socially. You take that concept and you apply the terms to it that David laid out, you know, half the size of a parking space, steel door, mesh over the window, no contact, um, 
and you start realizing very quickly that people start losing their their tether to their humanity in a way. So what what uh, when the lawsuit was brought, what argument were we were we making? So our main claim was that solitary confinement, as it existed on death row in Virginia, was cruel and unusual punishment, which is prohibited by the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution. Um, and one of the, I think, really interesting parts about the, the standard for deciding whether something is cruel and unusual is that it, the courts have said explicitly it, it changes over time. So they said you have to consider, quote, evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of the maturing society. So what may have been acceptable in 1950 or even 1999 um, may not be sort of something society is willing to tolerate today. Um, so when a judge is looking at something, um, they have to take all that into account, which was important for our case because there were past decisions from the Fourth Circuit, the appellate court in our jurisdiction that addressed similar, not exactly the same and in slightly different contexts, but similar conditions um, as recently as 1999. And those courts said, this is fine. Now, we certainly had arguments for why those cases were different anyways. But I think that part of the Eighth Amendment sort of standard and doctrine, the way courts decide these cases was was really important, um, particularly for the district judge, so that they had, you know, license to think about what may have changed since 1999. And, you know, as Katie was touching on, a, a lot of what had changed was there's, a, there's now a whole body of literature studying the psychological effects of solitary confinement and, you know, uniformly concluding that it has severe, you know, creates severe psychological harm. And corrections officials across the country had started to recognize this and change their practices, eliminating solitary confinement. Courts had started to observe it, although hadn't you know, sort of squarely decided it under an Eighth Amendment claim like ours. Um, you know, we we often quoted Justice Kennedy from the United States Supreme Court, who said in an opinion, you know, look, all this research is out there. It's very clear. Years on end of near total isolation it exacts a terrible price. Um, so I think that was helpful for, for our case. And, um, you know, we had to go on to show that, yes, in fact, it's harmful and and that the Corrections officials knew that um, and were, you know, sort of ignored it and continued the practice anyway. So something very interesting happened essentially not long after the lawsuit was filed. Uh, Katie or David, do you want to walk us through what happened? Sure. So the lawsuit was filed and I think Virginia um, thought it had a pretty good chance of defeating it right out of the gate, in part because the case law um, on these issues had been so terrible. So one aspect of, of sort of prisoners' rights litigation that you deal with, not just in the solitary confinement space, but just writ large, is that so many lawsuits are brought by prisoners who don't have counsel. And they bring these lawsuits, they obviously don't have resources to develop a factual record or hire experts or things like that. And so a, a body of case law often develops that is really, really um, tough to overcome. And so, for example, you might have a, a, a lawsuit brought by prisoners who don't sort of develop any of the facts. And then the court says, well, you know, there's I don't I think that um, solitary confinement, you haven't made any showing that it actually causes any risk of harm. 
So the, the body of case law within the Fourth Circuit, um, which is where Virginia sits, was quite bad. And I think that Virginia thought it probably had a pretty good chance of, of kicking this lawsuit right away. We um, made some of the arguments that David was mentioning, which is, you know, you don't have to feel bound, judge, by all of these terrible decisions. One, our case looks different than those cases, but also what was okay in 1999 or 1986 is not necessarily okay now at that time in 2015. Um, and we had a judge who I think was willing to um, consider those arguments and wanted to see what the record looked like. And so we made it past that sort of initial point at which many, many of these lawsuits um, get dismissed. And so we did develop that record and we hired experts and we sort of brought the full uh, juggernaut of Hogan Lovells to bear on this litigation. And after that record started to take shape and it was very clear how powerful the evidence that we were uncovering what it looked like and what we would be presenting to the court, Virginia, of course, said, well, wait, 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 wait. Since 2010, we have been planning to overhaul conditions on death row. It has nothing to do with this lawsuit, but we are planning to make major changes to the conditions on the row to give people more time outside. We're going to build them. You know, they use euphemisms for everything. And so they were building them a, a day room, which is like a cage inside of death row where more than one prisoner could be at a time so they could have some congregate um, activity. They were going to build them a, a, what was basically like a small outdoor gymnasium, but with basketball hoop and real space, as opposed to the cages that had been used for outdoor um, recreation before that. So they announced all of these changes um, in what was an obvious attempt to moot the lawsuit. So basically to say, judge, no need to let this lawsuit go forward. We're handling it. We're fixing the conditions. There's no reason to like continue with this and, and force us to go through costly um, and intensive litigation. Just let us handle it. And so we, um, of course, these changes were in the best interest of our clients, right? And so we agreed not to get rid of the lawsuit, but to stay the litigation, to give some breathing room to the Commonwealth to make these changes and see what they would look like. Um, of course, once the pressure of litigation had eased up a little bit because of this day, um, you know, deadlines started to slip and I think anyone who's ever done any renovating knows that uh, contractor deadlines are amorphous, but that was particularly true here where, you know, um, they would report to the court that something would be completed by October 1st and October 1st would come and go and November 1st would come and go. And it was only when we would file things and keep the pressure on with litigation that anything would actually get done at the prison. Um, and so, you know, this sort of, I think, gave up the lie that this was always in the works and this would have happened, but for, you know, regardless of the litigation. Um, but this is a pretty common tactic in, certainly in prisoners litigation, but also civil rights litigation generally is that the defendant will say, we'll fix the problem, don't worry about it, no reason to keep litigating this. 
Um, but it, of course, there's nothing binding the defendant to keep any changes that they do ultimately make in place. And so as soon as the litigation ends, they could just go back to the way that things were. Right. But keeping keeping this litigation on the on the front burner, um, keeping the filings coming prevented, I guess, the government from just slipping back into that into that same practice that it had that it had before. So ultimately, you said a court agreed with you at some point that the case had not been mooted by the steps that the government was taking or intended to take. Uh, So what was the what was the ultimate outcome of the of the court proceeding itself? The district judge disagreed with us and found that the the case was moot. Um, And we went up to the Fourth Circuit on appeal. We disagreed with that. Like Katie was saying, there was nothing stopping them from going back. And um, Katie argued that appeal and uh, did a fantastic job and persuaded the Fourth Circuit um, to side with us and say, yeah, this thing, the court still needs to intervene here because otherwise the government can just go back to the way things were. Um, So it came back down. And uh, the district judge addressed our Eighth Amendment claim and ultimately found that um, long-term permanent solitary confinement on death row did violate the Eighth Amendment. It was cruel and unusual punishment. And then the district judge uh, issued an injunction, you know, requiring um, or preventing, I guess, the Department of Corrections from returning to those conditions in the future. Um, again, recognizing that without the court's intervention, you know, the the Department of Corrections was free to go back the way things were. And, you know, one of the reasons that the court found that sort of injunction was appropriate is the leadership at the Department of Corrections would sort of never say never. Um, they said, we don't currently intend to go back the way things were, but they would never go so far as to say, you know, we're going to rule this out completely. And I think both the the trial court and the appellate court were really troubled by that, um, particularly when it was paired with their argument that those conditions were perfectly fine. They were not cruel and unusual. They did not violate the Constitution. Um, so ultimately, we got the injunction. We got the decision that these sorts of conditions are cruel and unusual punishment. What do you think, um, Katie or David, is the the long-term impact of this case? Have the changes stayed in place? Do you see other changes in other localities uh, springing from this? Yeah, so the changes have stayed in place in Virginia. And, um, you know, that alone is is the measure of huge success in any case, is that your own clients sort of get the full benefit of the purpose of the lawsuit and I think it's important to to focus on the individual level first. So, and this touches on some of the the earlier discussion about sort of what it means to be human. So, I think you know things that we take for granted, and and um, in the COVID era of COVID, maybe people are starting to have a little more appreciation for. But one thing that our clients said after the changes had been made and they were able to spend time with one another is how important it was for them to eat meals together. And that this was not something they had, we had pushed for. It was not something we had specifically asked for. Um, But it was, you know, that the, the fact of being able to sit across the table from someone and share your meal um, was enormously important to them and, and a big, component of what made them feel like they were being treated like human beings. Again, being able to hug family members when family would come to visit as opposed to seeing them through 
you know, two inches of plexiglass and talking through a, a phone, um, actually being in the same room, being able to touch somebody's hand when you're having a conversation with them. These things which feel small that we take for granted um, in our everyday lives are enormously important to sort of restoring and maintaining people's humanity. And I think for our own clients, those were huge benefits that grew out of the lawsuit. On a you know larger scale, I think this was really the first decision of its kind in the country holding definitively that long-term solitary confinement violates the Eighth Amendment. And that's an enormous accomplishment. Um, it's one that I think can be leveraged in lots of places, not just within the Fourth Circuit, um, but all over the country and applied to situations, not just for people on death row, but for anybody um, held in long-term solitary confinement, which is tens of thousands of people um, across the United States in all different kinds of circumstances. You know, this is something that um, states and prisons are going to continue to challenge. Um, it's not going to be an easy fight, but I think this is a huge landmark victory that that other folks um, can le certainly leverage in other places. I wanted to ask a little bit about that leverage um, you know, now that there is, a, as you say, a, a case that you can point to, uh, the, the efforts that you made to build the record. You know, the firm has also advocated for the treatment, uh, the ethical treatment, the human treatment of inmates in Louisiana and South Carolina. So could you talk for a little bit about those those lawsuits? As I understand it, the policy in each of those prisons was the same, which was to place all death row inmates in automatic, permanent, solitary confinement. Uh, what, what, um, tell us a little bit about those conditions. So in both Louisiana and South Carolina, a lot of our clients were people who were severely mentally ill, um, where solitary confinement can um, cause a lot of conditions like depression and suicidal ideation, anxiety. It, of course, can also exacerbate pre-existing condition, um, conditions like that. You know, 40% of our incarcerated population in the United States suffers from a diagnosed um, mental illness. And that I'm, I'm certain, I don't have the statistics, but that that number is even higher on death row. Um, and so I think that was a particular, both a challenge in terms of formulating the lawsuit, getting cooperation from our clients, but um, a, a really powerful aspect of the record in those cases. Um, but the Virginia suit certainly was the sort of catalyst for this and I think allowed us to build a little bit of our cottage industry on this topic um, on death row sort of all down the coast. It's a cottage industry, you know, in part because prison management maintains a, a cottage practice of of automatic permanent uh, solitary confinement of death row inmates. What what tends to be the government justification for that? I mean, is is it a is solitary confinement, regardless, as David said, of the circumstances of the particular individual who's being confined, is it an effective security measure? I think there are sort of two points here. One is that people on death, death row tend to be quite well behaved. And the other is that from a risk of harm to others standpoint, there's no evidence that people on death row are more 
or any higher risk of harm than say somebody who's convicted of murder, but serving a life sentence and in general population. And we, we focused a lot on that in the border litigation um, through one of our experts showing that, you know, the difference between somebody convicted of murder and serving a life sentence and the difference between somebody convicted of murder and serving a death sentence often has nothing to do with their dangerousness. I think that's why, while it might seem counterintuitive, these suits on death rows are, are sort of low hanging fruit because the prisons really don't have a good justification for why they house people on death row in these draconian conditions. And, um, you know, the other side of that coin is that the research really shows it is not an effective long-term security measure. And certainly it is incredibly expensive, both in terms of dollars, but also sort of human cost of keeping people in these circumstances. I thought one of the really powerful facts for us, Katie was talking about all the people convicted of murder, but serving life sentences and kept in the general population and how there's sort of this cost benefit. You know, the Virginia Department of Corrections was aware of that. They had for those general population inmates, a form of solitary confinement called disciplinary segregation, where they would be put in essentially those conditions based on bad behavior. Um, but even for them, the Department of Corrections set a 30-day limit on that and required that there be a 15-day, at least 15-day rest period between stays, recognizing, you know, I think that there's some security benefit if somebody's acting up, but it's not, you know, not the kind of thing you can do to somebody long-term as they were doing on death row. Yeah, and that that prompts me to think about something I think, David, you mentioned earlier, which is that you know, there are there are corrections officials who have started thinking about this very differently. And I'm wondering, you know, are, are you seeing any kind of a movement uh, away from these these kinds of, um, you know, solitary confinements permanent regardless of um, you know, disciplinary issues or threat of dangerousness? Are you seeing a, a corrections movement away or any kind of progressive thinking on the side of the corrections departments around that? I think Katie can speak to this too. I think we are, and we cited several examples in the Porter litigation of states that had previously housed death row inmates in solitary confinement, but recognizing the psychological harm changed the practice. And um, their experience was it didn't increase security risks. As Katie was saying, the death sentence inmates were no more likely to behave violently in the general population than, than other people. Um, our expert who was talking about these issues uh, was himself, I think, a, um, maybe a warden at some point and, and was on sort of the vanguard of trying to walk back some of these practices. Um, so it's certainly, you know, there are a lot of jurisdictions that still do it, but I think much fewer um, than, you know, five or 10 years ago. I think it's an example, just just thinking back to the way that Katie set up how this case was filed, um, you know, an example of how a, a single case involving a few people with really diligent factual development, understanding that that has to be the platform for everything that comes next, you know, results in a decision that you can then use as the platform for more litigation and just the the care and time that went into that effort, you know, on the part of you both and your team is really extraordinary. 
So any other thoughts you want to add before we wrap? In the firm, the case was actually filed by some civil rights practitioners, and they quickly realized that it was going to require what you just described, and they couldn't do it themselves. So I think it, for me, is I'm, I'm often cited as the example of what big, form, big law firm resources can do. Um, we had to hire the experts and put in the attorney time, and you know that's what it took to get this great result. One of the things that you sometimes hear um, you know, when we talk about Eighth Amendment issues and issues about confinement is you know, someone saying, well, you know, cry me a river. Uh, this person killed you know, one or more people. I'm sorry that you know, he doesn't have a window. I'm sorry that he doesn't get to see people. But you know, that doesn't strike me as a constitutional violation. What, what's the response to that, you know, that, that, that you think about when you're confronted with that argument, as I'm, as I'm sure you've been? For me, at least, I think there's kind of a societal systemic answer and then a, an individual sort of human answer. Um, I think on the societal systemic level, the way that we, and this, these are not my words, I'm, you know, paraphrasing lots of smart people, but um, the way that we sort of treat the most marginalized um, among us really sets the tone for what we tolerate as a society. And um, I personally believe that, you know, people are, should not be defined by their worst act. And for all of these people, the reason, the crimes for which they're on death row are certainly their worst acts. Um, When I had a baby, Thomas Porter sent me in the mail, like personalized with my daughter's name on it, um, like a little bunny that he had, I don't even know how he did this, but got somebody, a friend or family member to, in, to embroider um, my daughter's name on a bunny that she still, the bunny's name is Thomas, of course, now, um, that she carries around and sent it to me as a gift. I mean, people, these are real people with real emotions. Um, and He is someone who I've stayed in close touch with throughout the entire case and someone who celebrates major milestones in my life with me, somebody who, you know, before I argued the the case in the Fourth Circuit sent me one of the most um, sort of self-aware and beautiful notes I have received in my whole career. These are, these are human beings. And I think we have to believe in the capacity of redemption. David, what are your thoughts? The only other thing I'll add to is I think that view is a little bit exaggerated. Like we're not advocating here for filet mignon every Friday. We're just saying, you know, you shouldn't torture people, which is what solitary confinement was. Um, You know, they've been sentenced to death or in other jurisdictions, people sentenced to life, not that plus 10 years of torture. Um, So I think that's that's really what you know this particular issue is about. Yeah, and it goes back to the point too that that Katie was making. You know, there these these individuals, these humans, did something terrible in their lives, and they have received a sentence uh, about that. But you know, there is still a you know a necessity, I think, for society to understand that they are still human beings, that they still have a spark of humanity in them. And that there is an opportunity, as Katie also said, for for redemption and for connection um, and for, you know, connecting with the people around them. Well, thank you both very much, Katie and David. This has been wonderful to talk with you both about this. 
Not only is Hogan Lovell's engaging to ensure the humane treatment of prison inmates, we're also committed to helping those who were wrongly convicted. Next time on the podcast, we take a look at the case of four Navy sailors who were falsely accused of rape and murder. You'll hear from our client, Derek Tice, who was one of the four, and from one of our attorneys who worked tirelessly to free him. We hope you'll join us.